Good morning, church. How are y'all? Good. <laughs> Good to see you. Good. Today, uh, as Jamie said, we're finishing up the book of Daniel, and we're covering uh, the last three chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel 10 through 12, uh, focusing most of our time on uh, chapter 10. And so um, to help you in your study of 11 and 12, we have this resource for you. We had it last week, and uh, it should have been people at the door handing this out to you. But this is a a resource called Interpreting Daniel 8 through 12. And uh, these chapters are heavy uh, with prophecy. And so uh, a first reading of the book uh, or the chapter may uh, leave us guessing what all these things represent. So I want to encourage you to, to grab one of these sheets if you haven't uh, yet and, and, and read uh, not just the things that we're covering today, but the rest of the book. Uh, Daniel 11 and 12 reads like the book of Revelation. In fact, I have said before that it kind of the Cliff Notes version of Revelation, specifically uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In those two verses, we see Daniel write about the Lamb's book of life, the final resurrection and final judgment in just two verses, things that John uh, covers in greater depth in his revelation. So I want to encourage you to look at those things as well and study. Um, So today, though, we're focusing our time on Daniel uh, chapter 10. While there have been some difficult things of prophecy and visions in this book, we've said from the beginning there are very familiar stories in the book of Daniel in fact, I would argue that Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are probably the most famous chapters, right? Uh, the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 and then Daniel in the lion's den in, in Daniel chapter 6. Those are chapters of maybe this otherwise obscure book that we know. But I would argue after our study and concluding today that Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 should be the most famous chapters in this book because they give us the clearest picture of Christ. And in this chapter, I think it's a wonderful way for us to kind of end our time in the book of Daniel. We see Daniel have a conversation with Jesus Christ. And so let's see what happens here in Daniel chapter 10. Read with me in the first three verses. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. What's going on when we pick up in Daniel chapter 10? We're told that Daniel has gone through a really tough period of three weeks. He says here that it's three weeks of Morning, And this is not dissimilar to what we saw last week in, in Daniel chapter 9. Remember, Daniel read in the prophet Jeremiah that um, 70 years in the nation of Israel would go home. It had almost been 70 years, so he gave the Lord his attention by praying and fasting and getting in, into uh, sackcloth and sitting in the ash heap. And so we kind of see a similar thing here as well. Daniel's very distressed when we start Uh, Daniel chapter 10. The question is, why would he be distressed? And when I kind of fill in the gaps between Daniel 9 and Daniel 10, it's even more puzzling why he would be so distressed. If you remember in Daniel chapter 9, what he was looking forward to was the decree given by the king to say, hey, Israelites, hey, Jewish people, y'all can go home. 
We were told um, in chapter 9 that he was having all of this happening to him in the first year of Darius. In this chapter 10, it says the third year of Cyrus. We fast forwarded five years, and the book of Ezra tells us that in the first year of Cyrus, the Jews were allowed to go home. And so the thing that Daniel had been praying for in chapter 9 came true. And in Daniel 10, he's still mourning. Why is he mourning in chapter 10? A couple of reasons we think why he may have been mourning here. We would say, why is he he's sad? He, he got the thing he wanted. But we noticed that while the Israelites went home, Daniel didn't go. Why didn't Daniel go home? We're not exactly sure, but there's really two reasons possibly why he didn't go back to Israel. Uh, the first one, probably the most likely, is that he's about 85 years old at this time, and the journey was 900 miles. And so just the idea of him going back to Israel was really just impossible because of how old he was. He couldn't just hop on a plane and fly home. So he couldn't go home. Perhaps it was because he had a lot of duties in the Persian Empire, right? We know he's been very high up in the government in Babylon and Persia. Maybe his responsibilities didn't allow him to go home. And so in Daniel 9, God prays, Lord, we just want to go home. I pray that you would restore the nation of Israel. And then he, he gets his answer but he's still mourning because he doesn't get to go home. Another reason we believe why he's mourning, we're going to see this in, later in the chapter, but God has put Daniel through the ringer. He has made him see a lot of hard things. And I'm not just talking about Daniel the lions then and him get, being exiled, but when Daniel has these visions in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and 9, he, he gets to the end of them and he says, I was worn out. My face was pale. I had no strength because of what God was revealing to me. And Daniel's in a tough spot. He's been mourning for three weeks. I mean, you think about that, fasting and mourning for three weeks. Let's continue. Let's see what happens in uh, verses four through six. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. We're told Daniel's standing. Where is he? He's at the, the bank of the Tigris, the edge of the Babylonian border, looking across the water. Again, kind of reading into the text, but you wonder if he's just looking out, thinking about home, a place that he can't go to. And someone appears to him. And it says in verse 5, this was a certain man, but this is a certain extraordinary man. Did you notice some of the ways this man is described? He has eyes of fire. He sounds like, his voice sounds like the sound of a tumult. Who is this man in verses 5 and 6? And scholars are not unanimous on this. They say that either this is an angel or this is Jesus Christ himself. And I believe this is Jesus Christ. Why do I believe that? Because of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, if you want to turn there, I'll just read this for you. Uh, John is on the island of Patmos, right? He's separated by water from everyone he loves, just like Daniel is on the banks of the Tigris, separated from home, and he receives a vision of Jesus Christ who tells him in things just like Daniel's about to get. And in Revelation 1, verses 13 through 15, someone appears to Daniel, and he's described the exact same way. Let's read this passage. It says, starting in in verse 13, it says, in the, in the middle of the lampstands, 
I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and wrapped around the chest was a golden sash. His hair and his or his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it had been heated to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in Revelation chapter one, this one identifies himself as Jesus in verse 18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive, and I am alive evermore. Who is the one? The living one who was dead and now is alive forever. The resurrected Christ. And I want to show you the similarities in the descriptions. We're told that this person in Revelation 1 and in Daniel chapter 10 was a certain man or one dressed like a man. Notice in uh, Daniel 10 verse 3, we're told this person had a a belt of pure gold. In Revelation, it says that he had a a golden sash around him. In verse 14 of Revelation 1, it says that this person had eyes like flaming fire. In Daniel 10 6, it says his eyes were like flaming torches. In Revelation 1 verse 15, it says his feet were like burnished bronze. In Daniel 10 verse 6, it says his feet were like polished bronze. In uh, Revelation 1 verse 15, it said his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in uh, Daniel chapter 10 verse 6, it says his words were like the sound of a great crowd. Daniel and John are describing the same person. Referenced in Revelation 1 as Jesus Christ. I'm going to stick with the apostle Paul who believed he saw the same living one that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 10. This is Jesus appearing to him. Now, I want to talk about the way Jesus appears to people because this is not the way we see Jesus described in the Gospels. In fact, from Isaiah 53, we're told that there was nothing about the appearance of Jesus that would attract us to him. He was a normal-looking guy. He really wasn't even that attractive of a guy when he was walking around. Now, John said he saw the glory of, of Christ that was begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, but Jesus was revealing that not by glowing, per se, but by doing miracles and revealing his glory by teaching about the kingdom of God. John actually did get to see it in Matthew 7. 17, when Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain and Jesus transfigured before them and he glowed. And so it seems like in the scripture, Jesus appears as Jesus and in another way that I'm going to call neon Jesus. We got Jesus and neon Jesus where his glory is shining out in just an appearance and and we see the fullness of, of who he is. It's not just Jesus lowly and humble, but king of the universe. And I wonder maybe at this point when we see that Daniel got to see Jesus this way, we think about the disciples, they got to see neon Jesus, and John saw it in Revelation 1. I wonder if some of us might think, man, I have doubts. I struggle with, is God good? Is he real? If I could just see Jesus this way, it would really help me out. Why doesn't Jesus appear this way more often in church? I believe the answer to that is because we can't handle it. We think it would be so comforting and so uh, just cool to see. But as sinful humanity, as we, when we see God for who he is, we see the normal reaction for somebody like this. It's not comfort and encouragement. Initially, they shrink back and they're very afraid. Let's keep reading to see what happens to Daniel and some other people in verses 7 through 9. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. 
While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, that's a good word, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This is Daniel's reaction, seeing Christ. First, before we talk about Daniel's reaction, I want to talk about the people who were with him. Daniel was not alone. And notice it says in verse 7, only Daniel saw Christ. Other men saw him, and they, but, or they did not see him, but they could tell something was going on. And fear gripped them. And in this passage, it says that they ran away to hide themselves. Very similar to Acts chapter 9. When Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and the resurrected Christ appears to Paul, Paul was not alone. And there were men there who did not see Christ, but they were afraid of the vision as well. Listen to Acts 9, 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. We're told that if somebody is with the person receiving a vision of Christ, they're afraid too, even if they don't see Christ. But what about Daniel's reaction? Notice it says in verse 8, my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. That means deathly pale. I retained no strength. Verse 9, I fell into a deep sleep. I can't wait to meet Daniel in heaven one day and say, okay, buddy, let's, let's talk about what really happened. It's like somebody saying that they went to go give blood one day, and they say, when they pulled out that needle, right, uh, I became deathly pale, I lost all my strength, and then I just fell asleep. Like, okay, we, we know what really happened here. You passed out. Let's be real. Daniel falls asleep. Let's keep reading in verse 10 through 12. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your Words. We see Christ do something that we see the angels do when they appear to people. He's saying, don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm, I'm here to help you. Keep reading verses 13 and 14. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to you to give an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Remember in Daniel chapter 10, this figure is not explicitly referenced as Christ. And so if someone would disagree with me and say that this was an angel, they usually use verses 13 and 14 to say this couldn't have been Christ because of the description of spiritual warfare here. And I believe that is a bad interpretation of this passage. But it would sound almost at first that Jesus couldn't beat the prince of Persia. The question would be, well, if Christ was so powerful and he was so much better than the prince of Persia being a group of demons or probably more specifically Satan himself, why was Christ delayed in coming to Daniel. And I do not believe we should understand verses 13 and 14 as if somehow Christ could be thwarted by the powers of evil. I think we should understand it the way we understand the book of Job. Think about the book of Job. Satan comes to God and says, you have a righteous servant here, Job. I want to tempt him for a period of time. I want to 
wreak havoc in his life, and I just want to test him in so many different ways. And God, in his sovereignty, says, okay, you get him for a period of time. We're told that Jesus was not with Daniel like he is in this vision. For how long? Notice verse 13. For 21 days. How long had Daniel been mourning in the beginning of the passage? Do you remember? Three weeks. There's a correlation between where Jesus was and what he was doing and what he was allowing demonic forces to come into Daniel's life with Daniel's depressive mourning state. I'm not going to make any friends by saying this, but y'all, a relationship with Jesus does not mean that we won't walk through trials, we won't have to deal with demonic forces, and that we, won't be, that we will always be free of, of depression and anxiety. God allows his people to walk through some really tough stuff. But we have hope because Jesus will come. Jesus will not stay away forever. He will allow us to walk through these things. But think about Romans 8. He says, I will use all of it for your good. I will use it for my glory and I will come to you. And there will be an end to this. There will be an end. Christ allows us to walk through these things, but even in the valley of the shadow of the darkest death, I will fear no evil, for you are close beside me. Daniel goes through three really hard weeks, but then Jesus shows up. Let's keep reading in verses 15 through 17. I will say verses 13 and 14, I'm sorry, I can't explain them as to what Jesus was doing, and if a pastor tells you they can, run Because nobody knows, but it is really cool to see that even before Jesus came in the flesh, he was fighting for the nation of Israel, and he was playing an active part in spiritual warfare. Verses 15 through 17, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me." Jesus comes and he tells him that he's there to to help Daniel and talk with him. And then he starts talking about these three weeks of spiritual warfare. And and what's Daniel's response to it in verse 15? It says that he turned his face toward the ground and became speechless. I want you to notice kind of Daniel's posture in all of this. He starts with his face on the ground asleep. Christ lifts him up so he's standing. It says that he's still trembling. Christ speaks to him and then he just looks at the ground. I think of like a little first grader. Right, that you try to talk to and they're, just, they're not having it and they just kind of shut down, won't say a word, shy, nervous. It's like he's, he's thinking about all the things he's been through and the visions and the exile and now seeing Christ and he just, all of this is way too much for me. I'm just going to kind of withdraw into myself. He will not speak. We have a prophet of God who won't speak. What does Jesus do in response says, the one who resembled, verse 16, a human being touched my lips. And he opened my mouth. When we read this, students of the Old Testament, we should be thinking about some other things. We should be thinking about Exodus chapter 4, when God called Moses to raise up and go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and Moses said, I can't speak on your behalf. I'm slow of speech. And God said, who made the tongue? 
We should also think about Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw the Ancient of Days, he saw God up on the throne. And what was his response to seeing God in all of his glory? He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim came and touched the coal to his lips. God opens his tongue and he begins to talk to Jesus in verse 16 only to complain that he has no strength. He says it twice. Excuse me, just once. He says at first that the vision has given me anguish, right? The things that I'm seeing, I just feel so much anxiety from this, and I have retained no strength. Sorry, verse 17. How can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? There remains no strength in me. He does say it twice. He says, I have retained no strength, and no strength remains. And then in verse 18, I think Daniel 10, 18 may be my favorite verse in this entire Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. Somebody underline that one, highlight that one. Jesus comes to Daniel, he appears to him, he talks to him, he touches him and gives him the strength that he cannot retain. Verse 19. O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. That's the next kingdom, right, in the succession of four kingdoms. However, I will tell you that what is inscribed in the writing of truth Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Verse 20 is interesting. Verse 19 and 20. Jesus comes and he's talking with Daniel and he strengthens him. And Daniel says, all right, now, Lord, that you've strengthened me, go ahead and give me another vision. Because think about all these visions Daniel had been having and they're just imparting information, right? There's going to be this many kingdoms and Here's what the Son of Man looks like. Here's what the Ancient of Days looked like. Here's a, here's a goat. Here's a ram. All these different things that he's been seeing. And it's like Daniel's just imagining Jesus is coming to him to impart some kind of information to him. He says, okay, go ahead. May my Lord speak. Verse 19, for you have strengthened me. And Jesus says, do you understand why I came to you? Saying, Jesus, or Daniel, you don't understand why I'm here. I'm not here just to give you some information. I'm here to strengthen you. I'm here to give you strength. Have you ever had maybe a situation at work with your boss and normally 95% of your uh, kind of meetings or communication with them is about tasks and getting things done and and just about the business and problems that you guys have to go through and fires you got to put out at work. But then one day your boss comes up to you and says, so how are you? How are you doing? And it's a, it's a total shift of just from the business to almost someone being pastoral in nature of, I don't care about the issues and what's going on right now. I just, how are, how are you doing? And we see this in Daniel chapter 10. It's a very pastoral visit to Daniel. Jesus comes to strengthen him on the way to tell him a lot of crazy things about the end times in this vision. But he comes in Daniel 10 strengthen Jesus. I just want to encourage y'all that we need to take a note from Jesus there in some of our relationships. Sometimes even with Olivia, I was thinking just we can talk about what's going on with Reese and our work schedules and what we got to do for church that night. But sometimes we even in an entire day or maybe a couple of days, I don't just sit down and focus on her and say, how are, how are you doing? Church, we need to be doing that for each other. 
I believe God has called us to strengthen and edify one another in this way. Jesus comes to Daniel. When the nation of Israel had left, he reveals himself to him, and he strengthens him. What does this passage have to do with us? Let's take Daniel 10, and let's, let's see what kind of encouragement we have today. And, and here, here's the point. The work of Christ that we see in Daniel chapter 10 is what Christ does for his church in exile today. If we are living obedient lives, following after Christ, fulfilling his mission, if we recognize that this world is not our home, we can expect and we can take comfort in the ministry of our high priest, Jesus Christ, today as we fulfill his great commission. I know I've said this so many times, but we, like Daniel, are living in exile what has God called us to do? Well, we always go back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? The Great Commission. Let me read it. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, go and make disciples. We read that often, but we need to understand that when Jesus said to go, he was calling the church into exile. He was calling us to rethink the way we see our lives, right? Literally for the apostles, for the disciples, what did this mean? It meant for them to not just stay in Jerusalem, but to go into the entire known world and preach the gospel. And some of us may be saying, well, what is God calling me to do? Am I really in exile? I've, I've grown up in Athens. I've been here my whole life. But we need to be able to open ourselves up to the Great Commission. Say, God, where are you calling me to go? And for some of us, that may still be Athens, Georgia. But for some of us, that may be literal exile for us not to stay in our comfortable places, in the home that we grew up in, the county that we grew up in, but to go somewhere else. Anybody else scared? Scary. I love home. I love Georgia. I love the Southeast. And I don't want to leave home. And so... The church who cares more about comfort than faithfulness. We've taken the Great Commission and we've made it the Great Suppression. Let me say that again. We've taken the Great Commission and made it the Great Suppression. Instead of opening ourselves up to what God's calling you, what He's calling me to do, we push it down. We suppress it. We take God's calling and we get it out of sight, out of mind. And we expect Christ to show up and minister to us and empower us to build our own kingdoms and treat this world like it's our home. I think about Stanley, who came about, I don't know, maybe it was six weeks, two months ago, and he talked about his calling on his life to leave Dublin, right, which is the town he'd been in, right, and he had a comfortable church to go and plant a church in connection, Wilco, and he said, God blesses obedience. When you get to that place where you stop suppressing the Great Commission and you really open yourself up and say, Lord, you saved me, you've created me, I'm yours, this is not my life, it's your life, I will go wherever. I'm not saying that all of us are called to go overseas, but we all need to be willing to go overseas. We need to open ourselves up. He said, God blesses obedience. I want to know Christ this way. I want to, to walk with Christ like Daniel did, and that means I need to be able to open myself up 
the possibility that the rest of my life or that the, the necessity the rest of my life will be lived in exile for the Great Commission. And when I do that, I will be fruitful and I'll be closer to Christ and I will be comfortable at home. Three things that Christ will do for us if we take this step of obedience. The first one is Christ will reveal himself to you in your exile. Christ will come and he will reveal himself to you in your exile. Now, you may not be standing at the bank of a river and Christ appears in all of his glory. I'm not saying that, but I want you to know that if you go, Christ will be with you. He promised us that in the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, that I may go and leave all of you and leave family behind and they might not be happy that I'm going, but Christ will be with me as I go. He was with Daniel. He would be with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will also reveal himself to us through what? Through this word, 2 Timothy 3.16. God's word is God-breathed. And when I open this book and I study it, my high priest meets me right where I am. Here's another one that I love so much, that if we go and make disciples, we can know Christ has promised to provide people in our lives to build up the church. Ephesians 4.11 through 12, he tells us that God has given different people different goals and different giftings so that they will be able to edify the church, which means we know when Stanley goes out to plant a church or the R family goes to Indonesia to plant a church in an unreached people group, God will raise up other people to help them do the work of the ministry. And God will reveal himself to those missionaries and to those church planters, and he will help them through other people. Church, we can't do this alone which means if I'm in a body in Connection Church Athens and 50% of us are living out the Great Commission and 50% of us are suppressing the Great Commission, that suppression of your 50% is hurting the rest of those who are being obedient. Christ will reveal himself to you in exile. Second, he will give you the power to speak in your exile. Have you ever had an opportunity where you were supposed to make disciples of all nations, share the gospel with somebody, and you were like Daniel in verse 16? or excuse me, verse 15, you had an opportunity to say something. You didn't want to say it. You just wanted to be like Daniel and look at the ground and become speechless. Anybody else? I've been there. Verses 16 and 17, it's almost like, or verses 15 and 16, it's almost like the situation and the calling that God puts on our lives is too big for us. That's why we're so afraid of it. I guarantee you it's too big for you. You know how, who, who, who really it's for, you know who it's, who's big enough to handle your calling? Only God. And he puts us in places that are too big for us because Christ's power is perfected through weakness. Finally, and thirdly, Christ will give you the strength to persevere in your exile. I use that word persevere for a reason. I think it's a really cool word, perseverance. I'm going to talk about what it means. Our English word perseverance comes from two Latin words. It literally means through the severe. And we live in a culture that does not live through the severe. Is that fair? And maybe there's a temptation in all of us not to go through the severe. What would we do? Find a way to go around the severe. I mean, how many views and likes on TikTok are there about life hacks? Instead of you going through this, I've found a new way where you can go around it, and it's easy. Olivia looks up recipes all the time, and they say it every single time. This recipe is easy. When we hear things are easy, they're good. 
if I can go around the severe, if I can go around the hard, that's going to be better. Church, we have got to take that mindset out. If God's calling us through the severe, we got to stop looking for ways to go around it. So let's say Connection Church Athens people, all of us, we fulfill the Great Commission, and we go through the severe. We come out to the other side. Does that mean we all get together and high-five and say, good job, Jamie, good job, Lee, we made it through the severe? Is that what we should do? Who gets us through the severe? Who preserves us to the end? Not me, not you. It's Christ. And this is the wonderful doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. I know that I'm in Christ and that I will make it to the end because I am not upheld by my work but by the work of Christ. And I want to read two passages for you about this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is how Paul understood his life and his ministry and his exile. Listen to the Daniel imagery here. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all of the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. That's Paul writing, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul's writing, he's saying, previously, I was in a tough spot. It was almost like Daniel in the lion's den. And in that previous situation, God stood by me and he strengthened me so that I could preach the gospel. And then he looks to the future and he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he'll bring me home, not back to you know, Jerusalem or wherever Paul's home was or to Antioch. He won't bring me back to these places. He'll bring me to his heavenly kingdom, my true home. I know that my destiny is secure in Christ. Jude said it as well. Little, little epistle of Jude, one chapter, verses 24 and 25. He says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. We, probably one of the most common images of the end is that we will stand before God, the church will stand before God, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Think about your life. And think about that ending you've been promised. That does not add up. That I could stand before God and say, well done, good, or that he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. To me, that doesn't add up until we add the truth of the gospel. That when Christ looks at me, or when the Father looks at me, I should say, he sees the work of Christ. You know, God does not accept anybody but on the basis of works. It's not my work. It's not your work. It is the perfect work of Christ. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up. I think a, a wonderful way to end this series is to ask the really uncomfortable question, what is your exile? What is your exile? What has God called you to do in this place or in this city? Or maybe it's not in this city, maybe it's somewhere else. Are you uh, opening yourself up to the Great Commission or are you suppressing the Great Commission? Are you living with your plan or are you living with the plan of God?
And I just want us to take Daniel chapter 10 and say, Lord, I know that if I'm obedient and I step out into the unknown, into that exile, you will be with me, you will strengthen me, you'll give me the words to speak, and you'll preserve me to this is our calling. And when we get to that end, and God says, well done, good and faithful servant, it won't be about anything in me except for Christ in me. This is what we have to live. This is how we live. What do I do with myself? What do I do with myself? Because I have desires, I have plans, I have goals for me, is God asking me to throw all of those away? If they contradict his, yes. I'm twice his. His first because he created me and he owns everything he created. I'm his twice though because he created me but he also redeemed me. When I rebelled against him and rejected relationship with him to go my own way, he sent Jesus Christ to buy me back. I was already his and he bought me back. Twice his. That means everything is his. My talents, my gifting. Pray that Connection Church Athens would be a people pursuing the Great Commission. And that when somebody is sent out of here to go into a new season, Maybe it's a new city, new job, new career, pursuing ministry, missionary work. That that would be the thing we would celebrate more than anything. When we see somebody living out the Great Commission. Church, it's a weighty task, isn't it? I encourage you, see that weight. Submit to the mission and then give all the way to Christ. He's the one who's good. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good. Lord, and we know what you're calling us to do. God, I, I think there's somebody here this morning who, who has that desire. Lord, and they're, they're beginning to open themselves up to your calling. Lord, I pray you just give them wisdom and the ability to see their next step. And God, in that place of unknown and uncertainty and transition and setting off on a new adventure and not seeing the outcome, God, I pray you would give them peace. God, I pray you would just give a person here today who's still suppressing your orders. God, I pray they wouldn't be able to sleep tonight until they surrender. Because, Lord, we know in submitting our lives to you, there is life, there is joy, and there is great fruit for your kingdom. And God, I pray pursuing your mission would be the reason we get up every single day. And God, I thank you for the truth of your word, that one day you're coming back to take us home. Pray for grace that we would make the most of this exile for your glory and for your fame. Be with us now as we worship God. Get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Will you stand?